0: I like light movies. I like just romantic stuff. Have you ever heard of uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari? You can't see film without seeing that first. Whoa, okay. The cross cuts? I'm like really into editing. Editing is like my favorite. I'm like an editing freak. Really? Oh. It's German, okay. black and white, and silent. Get it. Abby who? Abby normal. Broadcasting from the backwoods of Fayette County, Pennsylvania, and promoting better living through bad movies, Clockwork Cardiac Productions presents Abnormal State Theater. There is no way out of here. It will be dark soon. Let us spend a few pleasant hours together. I want you to meet a dear friend. And now, the theater curator and host of these broadcasts, Dr. R. D. Gearhart. And welcome to episode number seven of Abnormal State Theater, the monthly podcast where we examine the therapeutic value of bizarre and obscure cinema of past and present as a cure for the common movie. I'm your host, Dr. R.D. Gearhart, and here at Abnormal State Theater, we celebrate all sorts of film, classic sci-fi and horror, monster movies, Japanese kaiju, foreign films, silent movies, B-movies, really the cheesier the better. If the movie's on my shelf, it's fair game. As is the case with the one I plucked from my silent film collection for this month's show. Now, excuse me. Last month, I know I announced that I would be launching a second monthly podcast, the Cardiac Yak Track, but I'm—I've come to a realization since then. Basically, my life is so—I don't want to say messed up, but if the shoe fits, wear it. Between my bad health and my family's bad health and responsibilities outside of the studio here, I don't know when the Cardiac Yak Track will be launched. In point of fact, I don't know at what point during the month that uh, any of my podcasts, you know, whether it be that one or a normal state theater, will actually drop. I've tried to adhere to a set schedule, you know, like the more professional podcasts, but unfortunately it's turning into more of a when I get around to it or when I have time for it project. I feel bad about this but it is what it is. Uh, To put it another way uh, Tom Waits the legendary singer songwriter poet troubadour. You classify yourself as as a poet or as a singer which one do you like to be classified Uh, as? I'm a Methodist quoted the equally legendary independent filmmaker Jim Jarmish with saying that you have three things to ch- two out of which you can choose fast, cheap, good. You can only pick two. If you want it fast and good, it's not going to come cheap. Now in the in the case of me that would mean putting everything out of the way and spending a marathon amount of time and letting other responsibilities fall the wayside. Can't do that. If you want it fast and cheap, it's not going to be good. Well, I'm not going to do that. Even if it's done infrequently, I want to make the best podcast possible for my listeners. And if you want it good and cheap, it's not going to be fast. That's where I am right now. So... As, uh, as those two artists said fast, cheap, good, pick two I'm going with cheap and good because even though I don't spend money on this podcast still the time that I have to spend in concerted amounts is sort of what I have to go on so basically in a nutshell just watch the podcast feed and I'll get the updates up when I get them up and i'm sorry about this some of my favorite podcasts are like that too uh, not the more professional ones but then again whoever said i was a professional the uh, one movie that i was going to use as the debut for the cardiac yak track uh, manos the hands of fate i found out just how little i knew about the movie whenever i started to research for the commentary uh, between uh, newly well maybe not newly uncovered but new to me Online resources, plus uh, the special features on Synapse Video's unbelievably good-looking restored version of the film, I found out that I knew next to nothing compared to what I thought I knew. So, I sort of fell down a rabbit hole in researching that, but I still intend on that being the debut episode. Anyway, in other news... I saw the Star Wars, the Rogue One trailer, unbelievable. This is a rebellion, isn't it? I rebel. The almost fanatical attention to detail in duplicating the hangars at the Yavin 4 base uh, the actress that they got that looks like a younger version of Mon Mothma. A major weapons test is imminent. We need to know what it is and how to destroy it. Who actually was used earlier on in a scene for episode three, playing the same character in a younger version that ended up getting cut from a movie. Still... A lot of people I talked to who saw the trailer thought that they got the older actress in and they did some sort of CG on her face. No, it's a different actress, but a dead ringer for the original actress who played Mon Mothma in Return of the Jedi. And I, I have those names there somewhere, but can't, sort, of can't access them right now. So in any case, I'm really pumped up for that just because it's going to be something different. It doesn't look like we're going to have any out-and-out Jedi in this one. I mean, they're saying that uh, there's an actor who's going to be playing Darth Vader. I'm wondering if that's going to be a little more in a glorified cameo. All indications are that this is basically going to be a heist film, sort of Star Wars meets Ocean's Eleven. They got cameras, they got watches, they got locks, they got timers, they got vaults. They got enough armed personnel to occupy Paris. Okay, bad example. And that is something that definitely interests me. So, we'll see what we'll see whenever it comes out later this year, in December. That's all in the future, anyway. After this brief message, we'll be digging deep into the past by examining a film that could be considered the direct ancestor of cinematic horror, 1920s expressionist classic, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Take a minute. See what's in it. When you're buying a vitamin product, read the label. Make sure you get all the vitamins recommended by government experts. You do in VIMS and three essential minerals also. Get VIMS at your druggist. VI for vitamins, double MS for minerals. VIMS. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Light, darkness, without the one you can't have the other, or as a wise man once put it, any time you light a candle a shadow is cast. It was the interplay between these two opposite forces that formed the backbone of an artistic movement that swept through Europe in the first decades of the 20th century. It was called Expressionism, or some people like to be a little more specific and say German Expressionism. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on how to precisely define expressionism. But when you boil it down, basically what expressionist art does is reject an objective view of the world and instead present it solely from a subjective point of view, distorting reality to create an emotional response, twisting the world around you to evoke a given mood or idea. Physical reality means nothing to the Expressionist or artist. All that matters is the emotional experience, and so the interplay between light and darkness was a natural medium through which the Expressionists could express themselves, so to speak. One of the earliest images to be associated with Expressionism is Edvard Munch's painting The Scream from 1893. If you don't know the painting, look it up on Google Images and you'll realize that you do know the painting but just forgot where it originally came from thanks to Wes Craven. May he rest in peace. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite scary movie? The style started to take hold in painting, literature, and theater design by 1908, around the, you know, the, first, the end of the first decade of the 20th century. And while many view The Student of Prague, a film made in 1913, which is sort of a creepy riff on the old story of Faust as the first expressionist film, Uh, basically the protagonist makes a deal with the devil and shenanigans ensue. Hi, I'm Satan. Enjoy the film. But even though some consider that the first expressionist film, it's not considered as having really taken a hold in that medium until after the First World War. When war broke out in 1914, it kind, of, it kind of ended everything for the moment there. Now we fast forward to 1918, the end of the war. And at this point, Expressionism was in full swing in Germany. And if you think about it, the Germans had reason to express their feelings, to have a distorted worldview. They'd lost the war. I mean, they were really, you know, slapped down by the reparations, the Treaty of Versailles. being denied the ability to defend themselves and so on and their economy was in complete chaos. But one bright spot during this time actually came when the German government banned all film imports two years earlier in 1916. What this did was give the German film industry a major boost and it caused several massive studios to emerge. Uh, The two that I'm most familiar with would be UFA, U-F-A, and I'm not going to try to pronounce what that's the acronym for. Uh, My German really isn't the best. And Dekla Bioscope, which was later on absorbed into UFA. By the 1920s, Germany had the most advanced and best-equipped filmmaking industry in all of Europe. Even though the economy wasn't that good, the German mark was devalued severely, to put it mildly, this meant that movies could be made cheaply and sold abroad cheaply. And since money wasn't being spent on imports, those savings could go right back to the studios to make more films. It was a unique time in history for the German film industry, and if, it were, if circumstances were different, most of the films that German cinema of the 1920s are remembered for now would not likely have been made. One obstacle though the German studios first had to overcome before they could capitalize on this was the fact that just as they had banned film imports during the war the victors of World War I weren't very keen to import movies from their former enemy. 999999 in France, there was a ban placed on German films that was supposed to last for 15 years from the signing of the armistice. In the UK, a similar ban was placed that was to have lasted for five years. And while there was no formal ban in the US, American filmmakers didn't really take kindly to importing German films because they viewed their German, the Germans Uh, as a threat to their livelihood. They were their rivals. So, one of the weapons the Germans used to overcome these barriers was Expressionism. Another was making films that were historical without really playing up their German origin. No, I'm sorry, I didn't introduce you. This is Ron. Ron Ribbentrop. Oh, not von Ribbentrop, I. Eh? <laughs> nein, 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 nein. Oh, ha. <laughs> no, different other chap. No, I in Somerset am being born. Von Ribbentrop is born in Strasse 46, Dusseldorf, West 8. So they say. Now, while Expressionism had become the style of the day in Germany, it was something new and exotic to the rest of the world. And in February of 1920, the film that would define German Expressionism for years to come was first released, Das Cabinet des Dr. Caligari, or The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, and it came out to both critical and popular acclaim. It was a major hit in Germany. Now the plot revolves around a carnival hypnotist, the Dr. Caligari mentioned in the title, who exhibits a sleepwalker or somnambulist named Cesare. And Cesare supposedly has been in a state of constant slumber for 23 years, pretty much since he was born. Now, don't try to think too hard about the logistics of that, just roll with it. Dr. Caligari claims to have the power to bring Cesare out of his sleep into a trance-like state to make predictions of the future. But he has a very nasty way of making sure his predictions come true. For instance, when Cesare predicts that a young man named Alan will not live to see the next sunrise, well, Caligari makes sure the prophecy is fulfilled by sending Cesare off in a hypnotic trance to murder Alan that night. Alan's friend Francis, who is really the first character that we really get familiarized with in the movie, suspects that Caligari is up to something. And at that point, the game is afoot. Now, I'm leaving a lot out here. I'm not really going to spoil the plot because it's a movie that I really don't want to spoil. Even though it's almost a century old, I still envy those who get to see a good print of it for the first time. The script for Caligari was put together by two writers, uh, Karl Mayer and Hans Janowitz, during the winter uh, between 1918 and 1919 and they drew from many different things to influence the story during the war carl Mayer feigned insanity to avoid military service and the military psychiatrist who examined him quite rigorously became the basis for dr caligari i'm section eight head to toe i'm wearing a warner bra i play with dolls my last wish is to be buried in my mother's wedding gown i'm nuts i should be out horse hockey the idea for Cesare came from a sideshow attraction where a man performed great feats of strength under hypnosis. And um, Janowitz believed that he had witnessed a murder take place on the Reaper Bond in Hamburg. The memories are short but the tales are long When you're in a Reaper bon. And he incorporated this into the story as well. Both of these men had a definite distrust of authority. Mayer from his experiences with the army shrink, and Janowitz from having actually served in the war and being disillusioned by what he had seen there, like many former soldiers of his time. Many details of the making of the film have been lost to the passage of time and also due to the conflicting stories of those involved. What we do know for sure is that... Eric Palmer, who was a producer at Declabioscope, had originally tapped Fritz Lang to direct The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, but he had to bow out to other commitments. Now, anybody who's familiar with the works of Fritz Lang, such as Metropolis, may wonder how different the film may have looked with him in command. It's a definite, it's an interesting rabbit hole, a counterfactual rabbit hole, so to speak, to fall down. if you know Lang's work. Instead, Robert Vine was selected to direct. And it's thought that one of his reasons is because his father was a stage actor who had lost his mind when he could no longer perform. And so the writers thought that his first-hand experience in dealing with the mentally unbalanced would give him a unique point of view in his direction. This must be what going mad feels like. The production design, the actual world of Caligari, was created by three German artists who worked for the German art and literary magazine Der Sturm. These were... And forgive me if I um, butcher these pronunciations. It's kind of embarrassing. I'm I'm of German stock primarily, and yet I can hardly pronounce any names with a proper German accent. But I'll give it a shot. The three uh, artists were... Hermann Varm, Walter Reimann, and Walter Rohrig. After they read the script, they felt that an abstract expressionist style would suit the subject matter best, and they came up with sets and backgrounds and designs that were by and large made up of high contrast elements, light and shadow, twisted shapes, jagged edges, exaggerated proportions. Basically, an idea of what reality might look like to a person whose mind has been shattered. I can't really do the sense justice with my words. You really just have to see the movie to understand it. No, this must be what going mad feels like. I'll put it this way. I have to wonder if perhaps a young Salvador Dali saw this movie when it first came out because his later art had a sort of similar affinity with distorted shapes. Now, after the fact, a number of people have taken credit for making the decision to go with the expressionist look. Some people say that Eric Palmer made the decision. Others say that it was one of the two writers. I can't recall which one offhand. Uh, The one that makes the most sense to me is that Robert Vine agreed with the three artists from Der Storm* for commercial reasons. He knew that expressionism was the hot item in the art galleries and on the stage, so a movie made in the same manner, which would be far less expensive to make than building realistic sets, would naturally sell well. And even if critics didn't like the story, the production design could still carry the film. So basically, Vine could have thought that, you know, we make this an expressionist film, it's bulletproof. God, 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 I think we got something here. What a bunch of crap. Crap, yes, but sometimes people love crap. Kugula, what do you think, you like it? It it doesn't suck so bad this time, Papa, no? See, we got something. And pretty much it was. In front of the lens, the outstanding performers were Werner Krauss as Dr. Caligari and Conrad Veidt as Cesare. Werner Krauss was already a respected veteran of the Max Reinhardt theater troupe at the time he took the role of Dr. Caligari. And after the movie, he was acclaimed worldwide. I'll put it to you this way. In the U.S., Lon Chaney Sr. is known as the Man of a Thousand Faces. Werner Krauss was known by that same title in Germany because of his abilities uh, to characterize different um, types of characters, pretty much. Unfortunately, he had a dark side. He was severely anti-Semitic and embraced the Nazi cause later on. Spring time for... Therefore after the war he was after World War II that is, he was banned from stage and screen for many years. Conrad Veit is sort of the polar opposite of Werner Krauss when it came to this attitude, but we'll get to that in a moment. After he played Cesare, he was noted for going on to play Ivan the Terrible in Paul Lenny's uh, film Waxworks in 1924. And when he played the disfigured circus performer Gwynplaine in 1928's The Man Who Laughs, he provided essentially the prototype for what we would know as the Joker today. Uh, Bill Finger saw this film and basically developed a character based upon Gwynplaine from a visual standpoint whenever he developed the Batman comic with Bob Kane. <laughs> Loosen up, dear. Have a laugh now and then. Why so serious? Let's put a smile on that face. I'm just gonna hurt you. Really, really bad. And if you ever see a picture of Conrad Vight as Gwynplaine, the similarities are unsettling. I mean. I, I know on my phone at one point I had a picture of him next to a picture of Conrad Veidt next to a picture of Jared Leto uh, playing the Joker in Suicide Squad, which has yet to come out. And quite frankly, I think Conrad Veit's Gwynplaine was scarier. He fled Germany in 1933 with his new Jewish bride and lived for a time in Britain where he played the role of the villain Jafar in 1940's The Thief of Baghdad. Leave your palace, go among your people, mix with the crowds. He made his way ultimately to the U.S., where he appeared as probably the role that he's best known for by most people, most movie buffs anyway, the uh, Nazi villain Major Strasser in 1942's Casablanca. Yes, that Casablanca. Do you mind if I ask you a few questions? Unofficially, of course. Make it official, if you like. What is your nationality? I'm a drunkard. (laughs) (laughs) And that makes Rick a citizen of the world. Unlike Werner Krauss, he was a fervent anti-Nazi. Of course, he married a Jew and actually identified as Jewish whenever he was asked by German authorities, even though it meant torpedoing his own career in Germany. He contributed heavily to the British war effort when he lived in the UK. When he moved to the US, he knew that he would likely be typecast in Nazi roles, so he made it a condition in his contract that any Nazis he played would have to be villains. Now, of course, we might think to ourselves, well, duh, of course Nazis would be villains. But at the time that he moved to America, you have to bear in mind, America was still a neutral country. They had not yet entered the war. And there were still a number of Nazi sympathizers the, among the American people. Don't be stupid, be a smarty, come and join the Nazi party. So, when you take that into consideration, that condition of his contract makes a little more sense. In support of these two lead actors, we have Friedrich Feher, who played Francis, who essentially is the audience surrogate. It's, it's he whose story thread we follow throughout the film as he interacts with Caligari and, and the other characters. There's Hans Heinrich von Twardowski who played the ill-fated Alan, uh, as I had mentioned earlier, the one that Cesare murders, and actually went on to play anti-Nazi roles in American films, kind of like Conrad Veidt did. As a matter of fact, he even appeared in a minor role in Casablanca. And rounding out the the main cast is Lil Dagover, who played Jane, who was sort of the common love interest of both um, Francis and Alan, And who ended up starring in four of Fritz Lang's films, Um, she, probably best known of those four would be um, Destiny, also known as Dermuda Toad, and, or Weary Death, and Dr. Mabuza the Gambler, which was basically a a crime thriller uh, done silently. Very good film, highly recommended. And she was one of the best-known actresses of the German Weimar Republic. Now, the Weimar Republic is basically what existed between the Kaiser's government during the war and the Nazi government that rose after Hitler came to power. She ended up being one of Hitler's favorite actresses, but she managed to largely avoid politics and so was able to continue acting on stage and screen well after the Second World War. Listen, don't mention the war. I mentioned it once, but I think I got away with it, all right. Let's pick up now where we left off in our story of the German film industry. There were bans against German films in France, the UK, and Belgium, and an unofficial boycott in the U.S. But as the buzz grew over Caligari when it came out, many filmmakers in allied countries began to question the wisdom of these bans. They were genuinely curious about what their colleagues in Germany were up to. Therefore, Caligari was the second German film to be allowed in the North American market in September of 1920, and it became an art house favorite. In France, where the resistance to German films was much stronger, the prominent film critic Louis Deluc was able to secure a one-time screening of Caligari As part of a charity benefit for the Spanish Red Cross in November 1921, Um, how the Spanish come into this, I have no idea. How's your Spanish? As good as my French and they both stink. In any case, the French went nuts over Caligari. The import ban was lifted and a phenomenon called Caligarisme, my French is much better than my German, became a part of French popular culture as the 1920s went on inspiring musicals and stage plays. Now in 1924, it was really the films that came after Caligari that broke through the British band that was lifted in 1922. But in 1924, uh, Caligari finally played in the UK. So it did sort of have a small role in breaking through the band. The expressionist movement had other classics to follow, of course. In 1922, it reached uh, what's generally considered its mature stage with F. W. Murnau's horror classic Nosferatu, A Symphony of Horror, and is generally recognized as having been ended in 1927 with Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which ended up losing money, uh, going over schedule and over budget, and ended up getting less than ideal treatment at the hand of uh, importers. However, the influence of Caligari and the films that followed it continued through the universal horror cycle of the 1930s. And the rise of film noir in the 40s and 50s. My, 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 such a lot of guns around town, it's a few brains. In no small part, this was due to a number of German filmmakers and cinematographers. Fleeing Nazi Germany for the U.S. And so they brought this knowledge of cinematography with them and the expressionist um, techniques that had served them so well in Germany. Um, One one thing that uh, once got me some strange looks from my family was whenever we were watching a rerun of I Love Lucy. My mom has the whole series on DVD, go figure. And we were watching the closing credits and the director of photography, the chief cameraman, was Carl Freund. Well, that name doesn't mean anything to anybody else in my family, but I recognized it right offhand. He was one of the cameramen for Metropolis, and I got really excited. And they all looked at me funny. What's the matter with everybody? Everybody's so grumpy every morning around here. The weird, shadowy imagery of German Expressionism that was shepherded by the likes of Robert Vine, F.W. Murnau, and Fritz Lang can still be seen today and felt today in the work of such artists as David Lynch, Joe Dante, and especially Tim Burton. Vincent is nice when his aunt comes to see him, but imagines dipping her in wax for his wax museum. Now, there are some film scholars who maintain that Caligari's themes reflect an anti-government stance, with the mad doctor portraying the wartime German government and Cesare the sleepwalker symbolizing the armed forces, the ordinary soldier, being sent off to mindlessly kill without questioning why, and that in some ways it prefigured the rise of Hitler. As a matter of fact, there is a documentary and a book haven't had a chance to watch or read them, though, called From Caligari to Hitler, that expounds on this further. And it's a connection that's definitely there if you look for it whenever you take a look at how Hitler held the German people in his thrall. But it seems from what I've read that the filmmakers only recognized this symbolism, this connection, later on. And thus preferred to say that this must have been their subconscious intent. Yeah, that's it, Ticket. In any case, I'll let the real film snobs slug that one out. I'm not going to step into that particular minefield. Moving on, in 1962, there was a so-called remake called The Cabinet of Caligari. But really, it was a remake in name only. It shared very little with the original film. And in 1989, a film named Dr. Caligari was released as a sequel that had as its main character the original Doctor's granddaughter. But again, it owed very little to its predecessor as I understand it, it focused more on sex and gore. In 2005, an experimental independent remake of the film was made in which actors performed in front of a green screen and then their performance was composited with matte shots from the original film. I own a copy of this remake, but just haven't had the time to watch it, but I may have to come back to it someday, I've heard some good things about it. Alright, enough preamble. Since this is a silent film, of course it has no real trailer, so I'm going to play a few clips from the soundtrack of the restored edition Blu-ray, and then I'll be back. Any time I view the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, I come away feeling both happy and sad. I'm happy that this film has managed to be preserved after almost a century, so that we can still see what the beginnings of film horror looked like. But I'm sad because there is no way a modern viewer can really experience Caligari the same way audiences did back in the 20s. All of the tropes, effects, themes, and elements that made it such a pioneering work of art, such as the framing story, the twist ending, the effective use of shadows and silhouette, the off-camera violence, leaving the blood and gore to the imagination, have all been pretty much done to death in the decades since then by movies to follow. And so today, instead of Caligari being a scary movie, most people would look upon it as just a dusty old art film, even though at the time of its release it was considered to be a part of mainstream cinema. It's just a relic now to most people. It's almost impossible to distance ourselves from what we've already seen in the horror genre to really be scared by Caligari today. And I grant you not many elements of the movie have aged well, but there is still much to appreciate here. For instance, the acting is done with broad gestures, carried over from stage acting, where the actions of a character had to be visible all the way back to the cheap seats. Now, without sound, these gestures were still considered necessary by filmmakers of the time to convey emotion, and while they did soften up as time wore on, they really didn't go away completely until talkies took over. At the same time, though, Watch the main characters, Caligari and Cesare, and how they move in relation to their surroundings, in relation to these twisted sets. Werner Krauss makes very herky-jerky abrupt motions as though his psyche has been twisted to the point that it's affecting how he walks as he hobbles about on his cane. We can see similar manifestations of madness in the character of Kanak from Nosferatu, and wrote Thong the Inventor in Metropolis. I may be stretching things a little bit, but I think that even Emperor Palpatine, or Darth Sidious, if you will, from Star Wars has some of this influence. Something, something, something dark side. Something, something, something complete. Conrad Veidt as Cesare, on the other hand, has the fluid movements of a dancer which are augmented by his rail-thin physique. One can see the elements of both Caligari and Cesare in the character of Count Orlok from Nosferatu, who also was very tall and gaunt but moved in a very fragmented, herky-jerky manner. It is said that Robert Vine wanted his actors to perform their roles as though they were part of a dance. Hold the string! Dance to that and interact directly with the expressionistic sets. But really only Werner Krauss and Conrad Veidt fully committed to the idea. Uh, there's a reviewer from the period that described the scene where Cesare walks with his arms outstretched against a wall, seemingly feeling his way along, and he's described here as looking as, like he was extruded from the wall itself and I have to agree when I watch that scene. The other performances are more or less conventional, really. Uh, Friedrich Feher as Francis, for the most part, is like a bland everyman. Uh, And in some cases, that's what you need in an audience surrogate. Uh, He's just a student who would have stayed out of this whole mess if his pal Alan hadn't bugged him to go to the town fair. The performance is adequate, but not really spectacular. Hans von Twardowski as Alan, well, he fares better in his short-lived performance. This time around, I noticed something about him that I'd never caught before, though. His facial features, outfit, and hairstyle are extremely reminiscent of Matt Smith as the 11th Doctor on Doctor Who. Hello. I'm the Doctor. Basically, run. The nose, the chin, the general expressions, even the hair. If he'd have parted it just a few inches to the left, he'd be a dead ringer for 11, down to the the quiff of the hairstyle. And the devil make hair attitude that he exhibits for most of uh, his run in the movie, even in the face of Cesare's prediction about him also kind of mirrors the Doctor's personality. Now does that mean that Matt Smith studied this role or studied this performance in preparing to play the Doctor? Nah, I, I seriously doubt that, but the resemblance is there if you look for it. And Lil Dagover in playing the love interest, Jane, is largely bound to the broad acting style of the time as well but she does have a few truly creepy moments. In her very first scene, she drifts through the shot as though in a trance, wearing this flowing white dress and parts, you know, pushes away some branches that are in her way as she passes through. And just the, the ghostly motion portrays what I think was the prototype for Dracula's Brides in the 1931 Todd Browning version with Bela Lugosi. Now, I've already talked about how the influence of Caligari can still be felt in much of the horror and suspense uh, movies that followed it and still reverberates to this very day. But one place I never expected to see it was in a modern music video. And yet, a few years ago, uh, my colleague, Rich Wayne, told me about Rob Zombie's video for the song Living Dead Girl from the 1998 Hellbilly Deluxe album. Now, I'm not really a fan of Rob Zombie, but musicality aside, credit has to go where it's due. He created a pitch-perfect tribute to Caligari. He cast himself in the role of the Mad Doctor and his wife, Sherry Moon Zombie, as a sort of distaff version of Cesare. Now, it's not a shot-for-shot remake because we're just talking a music video here, but Rob Zombie does hit a number of the beats of the main story. In this video. It's far more of a tribute to silent film than say the Express Yourself video that was done uh, for Metropolis by Madonna. If you'd like to see The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, the best thing that I would recommend for you to do is to pick up Kino Lorber's 4k restored edition that came out on DVD and Blu-ray in 2014. Typically, it's available between 10 and 20 bucks, but even if you have to pay a little more, it is worth it. It has the clearest image with the original color tinting restored and the original German intertitles, which are also done in a twisted expressionistic style, included with English subtitles. And there is also a wonderful soundtrack, part of which you heard just a few minutes ago that's likely more period accurate than anything that has been used in the past. Now, I've not been able to find any information on the original music for the movie. That may well be lost to the ages, but what's used in this DVD really works well. And Blu-ray, excuse me. Another version that is acceptably good is Kino's restored authorized edition from 2002. The print is a little rougher, but still watchable. And something interesting about the 2002 version is that the original intertitles are translated into English but still kept in that same funky style as the originals. Although the two soundtracks that you can choose from on this disc do leave a bit to be desired. One version you want to avoid at all costs is the alpha video version. Even though it's likely the cheapest version out there at probably five bucks tops, it's also the worst. It has a horrendous black and white print. Some of the inner titles have been computer generated, so it's like, you know, you're looking at something that looks like a standard silent movie inner title. And then it cuts to this horrendous yellow lettering on a blue background that looks like somebody just pulled up a, and to, basically pointed the camera at a computer screen. It's awful, just awful. Disappointed! And it also commits the cardinal sin of having a soundtrack that really doesn't follow the action on screen at all. As a matter of fact, it sounds like it belongs more in a Paris dance hall than a German horror film. As one of my distinguished colleagues noted once about Alpha Video, you get all the value you can fit into nothing. And it's really a shame, and this kind of gets me mad. So forgive me if I get a little worked up here. But it's really a shame that so many of the silent classics—Caligari, Nosferatu, The Golem, Metropolis, Intolerance, Phantom of the Opera, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, etc., etc.—can just be thrown on to DVD from some ancient public domain print that's been damaged and shown without any original tinting and played at the wrong projection speed. I mean, most people have this concept of silent film being like the Keystone Cops where stuff was sped up for comic effect. A lot of silent movies though were never meant to be shown that fast. It's just that they were recorded at at a slower frame rate. Only maybe about 18 feet per second was the average for a lot of silent films. But modern projectors show stuff and modern film is done at 24 frames a second so you get this speeded up look unless you're taking into account that slower frame rate therefore these silent films now look really corny and all sped up because they're shown at the wrong speed it's no wonder so many people look at silent film and laugh out loud because they're not seeing these films the way they were meant to be presented I'll admit that I've owned a few Alpha Video bargain basement specials in the past before I knew any better. I mean, granted, you know they slap these on t- from a public domain print at the wrong speed without pr- without tinting for just a few bucks a disc. If you're uh, trying to build a movie collection on a budget, it's kind of hard to resist. But it's difficult to appreciate these movies whenever you see them in such a poor presentation. Whenever I saw some properly restored silent films and learned about companies like Kino and Criterion that really care about film restoration, those bargain basement discs went to the garbage, not to Goodwill, not to the thrift store. I'd rather take the financial loss and throw them away instead of putting them back into circulation because I refuse to contribute to the abuse and misunderstanding of movies that blaze the trail for the genres we know today. Most people don't appreciate silent film once again because they've been watching them the wrong way, because they've been presented the wrong way. And I'm sure that if more people watched these restored editions, maybe they wouldn't get into it the way I have, but at least they'd have a better appreciation for it. Okay, end of rant. I'm not really going to get into the educational bit this time with the graduation music and what have you, because I'm hoping that this whole podcast, like the Metropolis episode before it, has hopefully educated you listeners about a film that many would consider bizarre and obscure, but is still a very important film. And one that really every movie buff should see at least once in its fully restored form and that brings a close to this episode of abnormal state theater hopefully soon after this episode drops i can at least start work on the cardiac yak track like i've been threatening to do for so long but i'm going to be honest don't hold your breath on it but um, hopefully around this time next month you will be getting another episode of Abnormal State Theater. At least that's the plan. As I said, I'll try to get them out on a monthly basis, but they may not be bang, you know, exactly one month apart. It all depends on my other circumstances. Anyway, till then, this is Dr. R.D. Gearhart signing off and reminding you to watch some abnormal films, because normal is boring. See you next time. Watch out for snakes. You have been listening to a Clockwork Cardiac Production.